Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss Returning the Screw from the 1993 album In on the Killtaker is Sean Madigan Hain, the author of Songs Only You Know, a memoir, and the vocalist and guitarist of the Detroit band Thoughts of Ionesco. Sean, how are you today? I'm doing great, Ian. Uh, how are you doing? I'm well. I'm glad you could join me. Doing a rare morning recording for me, so I'm, I'm glad you could squeeze me in. A- absolute honor to talk about Fugazi. We could jump right into it and talk about your relationship with the band and, and how you first got into them. Uh, would you like to start there? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, it, it, it's funny you know, digging through your podcast, how archetypal some of the, the stories are about how people came to Fugazi. Um, in some ways, mine's not too much different, but uh, I, I was pretty isolated in my, uh, you know, music intake as a kid. I was also, I guess, when I look at it, pretty precocious. Uh, somewhere around 10 years old, uh, I heard guitar rock I think it was Guns N' Roses, like, over the airwaves, and it just, like, plugged into my spinal column, and I, I, overnight, was obsessed with rock and roll music, I guess, and, um, so, uh, it was definitely a a heavy metal, uh, time, um, I was also raised in a pretty strict, strict, kind of, like, hyper-Catholic, um, pretty square family, so it was this thing of, like, sneaking off to the library to, uh, rent LPs, um, the vinyl was, you know, what was available then, and, uh, sneaking them home to the turntable and playing them, uh, when nobody was around, so, you know, it was this, uh, process of just trying to get a hold of this stuff, and, um, no one in my, uh, like, age range where I lived in a place called East Dearborn really had any interest in, uh, and guitar music, aside from uh, one friend uh, I had. So it was a lot of like pestering these older skateboarders who were like five or six years older than me to dub tapes of whatever uh, they were willing to dub. Um, at, at times I was almost like risking, you know, getting beaten up. I was so like um, just persistent with like begging them, please. So I was getting like uh, these tapes with no song titles, just names of bands, and it would be things like, you know, Metallica Master Puppets on one side and, like, Youth of Today on the other. <laughs> and uh, I loved it all, um, and I had no real context for what any of it meant other than it was this highly energized, um, uh, you know, guitar-driven music. Um, so... You know, that went on, and it, it, I think once I found, like, the SST mail-order catalog sometime by the when I was around 13 and 12, 12, maybe, you know, and a lot of people talk about Nirvana hitting the airwaves, and that was this, you know, whole new realm of uh, guitar music, Jane's Addiction coming around. There was also, like, a, a really well-known cable access show run out of Dearborn, which has some pretty significant context in the punk world, because in the 80s they did that... Um, why be something you're not show like a negative approaches on it and the misfits and um that stuff would air on cable access like in the middle of the night so i'd i'd like run vhs tapes but you know eventually i just had all this music swimming around on on um 
you know, uh, dubbed cassettes and somebody, uh, some older kid said, well, here's this band Fugazi. I remember like the pitch was like, they don't sell t-shirts, you know, that was one of the, uh, and it's this guy from this other band, Minor Threat. I hadn't heard Minor Threat yet and, and, and they're pretty wild and it was steady diet of nothing at that time. And, um, you know, it's one of those like sense memory things where like something about the guitars, I was just like, what is this? It's so kind of like uh, angular and hard to understand melodically for my ears at that time. Um, and I also just had this weird sense that like there's something really deep happening here. I had no idea what they were singing about. Um, but just, you know, something in the, the, the ethos or the, the chemistry of the playing alone, I was just like, this is some kind of other thing. Uh, it was actually the song Long Division that was kind of like my entry point. It had that just, you know, beautiful melody. It sounded so sad. And I, I just never heard guitars used that way before. I, I had been acquainted with Sonic Youth a little bit, um, which I really liked. But, uh, you know... The Steady Diet uh, dub tape hit me, and um, it just began this obsession. So, uh, you know, within that time, that couple of years, um, I managed to track down like 13 songs and fell in love with it. And um, and then, you know, this is kind of like this almost classic, like coming of age, um, you know, 90s concert going uh, story. Um, I was 14, and Fugazi was coming to a, a town about an hour away called Pontiac, a kind of left behind um, industrial town. I, I'm, I'm from the Detroit area. And uh, it never occurred to me that that Pontiac, the car brand, is named after a town in Michigan. Is that is that the case? Uh, there's must be some fidelity there. Absolutely. You know, I'm, huh. I, I'm sure it's a, a, you know, a Native American um, yeah, now that I think of it, it's, it's totally a Native American sounding word. Yeah, I mean, Detroit in general, especially where I grew up, Dearborn is like the town of Ford. It's like everything is, there's a Ford Woods Park and Ford Field, and I mean, everything is Ford. <laughs> Pontiac was, yeah, yeah, it was one of these, uh, you know, kind of falling Rust Belt cities. Um, and uh, another kid in my, uh, I guess I was a freshman, um said it was kind of like if we can get a ticket i know a guy who knows a guy who has a car and they're gonna let us like come along <laughs> you know so however you do when you're 14 you, you you walk up to some ticket master that sells the ticket for five bucks you know true to the legend and um we hop in this car with these older like uh guys with the you know one of them was wearing a jacket and he was you know, about four foot five, and another guy had this wild hair with a fork stuck in it. <laughs> I've never heard of that one before. 90s alternative nation, like, freaks. And I was like, I love these guys, because I, I was very much a, a, around a, a culture of, you know, it was either like, you know, your jock thing, or your kind of white rapper thing, or just like, you know, there wasn't a lot of subculture, um, in my neck of the woods and um uh you know the feeling of cruising with these guys and we stopped at a denny's along the way and it was on that car ride uh where i heard repeater for the first time um the album they were playing and i was like oh my god this is another one and it's it's different and it and kind of explosive in this whole different way 
I did have Kill Taker by that point. It had just come out, and um, I was struggling with it a little bit because it was, uh, uh, you know, even more like opaque and, and abstract uh, than some of the other stuff. Um, I was just just starting to wrap my head around it. Um, so this car ride was this epic thing. I think they also played the the first Quicksand album on the on the uh, way, and I was like, it's like Fugazi meets Helmet. It's crazy. <laughs> and you know how those things hit you at that age, and um, and and this was the first show I'd ever attended, so I, I I'm pretty lucky. My 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 first show was a Fugazi show, and uh, wow, it's quite the introduction. Yeah, and it was a huge show. I, I looked up on the archive; it said there were five thousand people there. It was this uh, the the Phoenix uh, uh, Amphitheater, which is on the top of a parking garage. Um, it's just this huge open space, and. Uh, so the first band that played was the Laughing Hyenas, which was, you know, quite a, an assault on the sense, uh, assault on the senses, um, you know. And then Fugazi played, and it was a lot of uh, Kill Taker material, and then, you know, a lot of stuff from the rest of their catalog. And, um, you know, I have to watch it when I talk about Fugazi. I, I, I can, I can be a bit of a uh, I don't know, a, a cynic about some of like the nostalgia, deep dive culture, just the amount of content out there on the internet that, that we can get mired in. But, but when it comes to Fugazi, I'm just all in, you know, so, uh, but I get a little, I get a little sanctimonious when I talk about Fugazi because it was, I mean, those shows I saw at that time, um, were as transcendent as like anything I've ever experienced in my life from like, ceremonies i've had with tribes in peru to like deaths of loved ones it was like i don't know what happened some kind of astral projection thing of my little 14 year old ass being a couple rows back from the front in 1993 in that crazy crowd and them performing that material uh it was like a neurochemical change and i was just uh, never the same you know and it wasn't just like seeing this amazing guitar rock band, what I would argue is maybe the best guitar rock band of the 90s. You know, so much of the intention behind what they did and who they were, which I didn't even really know about yet intellectually, it just seems so present um, in, uh, you know, their presentation. Uh, it, it truly changed me, you know, and a lot of things changed from that from that day. I mean, um, the way I responded to the world politically, spiritually, socially, you know, um, it was huge for me. It was so big. Uh, so there's so many facets to talk about uh, with Fugazi for me personally, um, you know, not the least of which is just like how fucking great the music is, you know, um, so... That was how I came to it, and uh, uh, um, I saw them every time I could after that. And you know, I I remember the day driving to get Red Medicine, and just the way that one hit me, and um, it led me to a lot of my closest friendships too that that stand to this day. So then that was kind of how it started for me. Yeah, that's amazing, and I think it's really well said. Like, there's. I mean, if it weren't for those transformative live experiences, I'm sure I wouldn't be doing this podcast, regardless of how good the records are. It's just this, um, yeah, as you as you say, some kind of like weird chemical connection. Um, it is the kind of thing that changes you and <laughs> makes you want to spend a couple of years doing a in-depth podcast about it 20 years later. So 
it has staying power the, the stuff that they did for sure I, I do use the word spiritual very loosely more in the, the terms of some kind of just Taoist relationship with nature or something so uh, you know, I'll, I'll clarify that <laughs> no but well I, I think there's um there's some interesting ground to explore there in terms of uh, the song we're talking about today which uh, it seems was was played at that show in Pontiac that that you were mentioning. I assume you've probably gone back to, to that and like maybe listened to it on the Fugazi Live series, but I'm checking out the set list right now. Looks like a good one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, really what they could teach you about dynamics from, you know, bringing it down to those pins and needles moments and then the way they could explode. And, uh, you know, there are so many great bands and, and probably a million bands who on some level are technically more proficient than than Fugazi but the, the chemistry between uh, that band was just um, uh, it's still hard to explain to people um, you know who maybe weren't there just what it felt like when they when they were on the, so the song in question is returning the screw I guess the first thing I want to say off the bat is to students of literature, the the title might ring a bell as probably an allusion to The Turn of the Screw, which is a novella by Henry James, sort of in the sort of in the like gothic horror, but like a, a sort of a, a later riff on gothic um, mm-hmm. type genre. Uh, I haven't actually read it. Have you read that, Sean? I have only read the Aspern papers, uh, but I'm fascinated by the the Henry and William James, uh, you know, canon. Uh. Yeah, I attempted to uh, to start reading it, but I I didn't get far enough along to uh, to to really say. I guess as far as the title goes, um, I'll just reveal to the listeners that what that means is it, it's it's one of these classic old tales that is like presented and is a like frame within a frame kind of story and this guy is saying oh i i know this really scary story that uh, i heard from somebody else and he's telling his friends this and uh uh like basically he introduces it as a horror tale involving children and um for a horror story like adding a child into it gives the horror another turn of the screw uh as they say and uh, to have two children involved uh, gives it an additional turn of the screw so yeah the, the meaning of the title just being like intensifying the the pressure i it makes me think of like the you know the thumb screws torture device um just uh adding adding pain and adding tension which is certainly applicable to this song in its like structure and construction and sonic qualities absolutely absolutely you know you're pretty deep into you know analysis of, of the lyrics now and um ian's getting more opaque and and uh uh elusive as the albums go on which i which i loved um and then you know gee kind of always had that going on um I've, I've liked some of your conversations where you get into just the uh uh, you know, some of the abstraction of Guy's lyrics and, and what they might be rooted in. But then, you know, Ian, it seems to me, even at his most, uh, you know, sort of mysterious, um, you can still unpack them if you kind of work hard enough. Or Do you find that distinction to be carrying through? I, I feel like anyone would agree that Ian is the easier songwriter or at least lyricist to to unpack. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. 
some other just like brief introductory remarks here. Um, when I talked with Ted Nicely um, a little while ago, and that's that's in the archives, he called out this song specifically as one where he had to work with Ian Mackay on his mic technique, like during the quiet parts, mm-hmm. to sort of preserve that dynamic and that it wouldn't sound, uh, I think, smacky and spitty was the quote that he used. Right. So, uh, yeah, we have we have Ted Nicely's uh, fingerprints on this. And uh, also, uh, as always, when it comes to talking about a song from In on the Kill Taker, there is some wisdom in uh, Joe Gross's book, Friend of the Show. And uh, I'll briefly quote from that uh, so as not to give too much away. But Ian quoted as saying, this was the era of the mean zine. People would write things under the pretense that they were joking the humor being this fuzzy ball that has a poison arrow in the middle. And uh, also, he specifically cites this... Um, d- did you read this book, by the way, Sean? I, I, I did. You know, my, my quick riff on that is um, uh, I, I'm a writer. I, I mostly write, like, literary fiction and nonfiction. I'm not a music journalist by any means, but, uh, like... Two nights before I saw there was a, a call for submissions for the 33 and a third, I threw together this pitch for In on the Kill Taker that same year. Um, and uh, and then they, they, they shot back a couple weeks later, like all the pitches, and I saw there were two for Kill Taker. And I was like, oh, I really stayed away from it for a minute for a minute because I've, I've loved some of those books and other ones I've been I, I haven't loved as much and uh, I just couldn't bear to read uh, a, a book on that record that that was gonna disappoint me and then a friend bought it for me a couple years ago and I read I read it in a sitting and like Joe nailed it he he addressed so many things that um, I'd wanted to get into and and, and the band you know, uh, responded to so many things that like intuitively all these years, I was like, yes, that's what I thought. So uh, I did read it a couple years ago. I thought it was great. I, I'm Now I'm going to be wondering how the book would have turned out as, as written by you. I had a whole idea, but uh, not to do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so one thing Ian Mackay specifically cites is uh, this, this record that came out by a band called Poison Idea. Mm-hmm. And the for the album cover, they used a photograph of a guy's asshole, basically. He was like bent over, spreading his butt. And they, yeah, the title of that record was Ian Mackay. So um, <laughs> there's there's like apparently this back and forth, like the uh, either uh, someone someone with a band or the record company like wrote to him and just like giving him a heads up like hey this is coming out and you know this we this isn't about you personally we just like thinks that some of your fans some of the people that see you as a god are like real jerks and like so so that's the idea behind the record cover and uh yeah and like ian shot back a letter uh that uh he didn't didn't take very kindly to that and but that's like one of the kind of things uh on his mind i guess as he was writing this song. Yeah, you know, I, I always took this song as like, you know, somebody really uh, kind of came at him in, uh, you know, sheep's clothing and, uh, and and did him wrong and, and it hurt, you know, when I was younger and he's pissed. Uh, and then later on, you know, maybe we could talk about that in a second. I, I think there's a deeper wisdom in his approach here, but 
you know, I, I remember like uh, I, I was touring around in the 90s with my little band and the van tours and DIY spaces and every like anarchist collective you could imagine in North America. And um, so much of that whole circuit was in ways inspired by or, or you know, um, uh, you know, indebted to Fugazi, in part, there were a lot of bands that really sounded like that or had parts of their sound. And yet, you know, in that kind of like hyper-pressurized subculture, there was so much shit talk about Fugazi. I think just because they were so big, they like had to be taken down, you know? And I was always like, like, wait a minute, this is the, this is the band that has shown it can be done. And, um, you know, thinking about this song for today, I'm like, can only imagine uh the kind of shots ian had to endure uh over the years um by detractors and people who didn't understand and you know largely he he has so much so little to like live down it seems he handled and weathered those storms so gracefully i mean um uh you know not to mention that all the while he's like not only playing these shows, writing these music, he's managing the band and booking the tours and driving the van and running a label and helping other people out and taking shit. Um, so it's a powerful statement, um, you know, this song, I think. Yeah, it's it's sort of hard to imagine, like, if you put yourself in his place, it's like, okay, he's a guy in a band, he writes songs, He's he's like a creative person for a living, and he doesn't, like write songs attacking really anybody except i mean you know <laughs> fascists in government basically um and uh people trying to you know con- control other people but yeah just something about the the level of success that he and fugazi reached really engendered a, a certain level of backlash that yeah i, I remember it well also mm-hmm. um i mean you, you also had you know you're like nihilistic types who were like you know oh he's so pious and and then you had kind of like your uh you know the guys who wore the uh basketball jerseys and moshed hard and they 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 said he was a pussy and like i mean it just seemed like there were a lot of people who didn't like uh uh fugazi and ian and and what it stood for uh and yet at the same time it was kind of like he's sort of like the ultimate uh, spokesperson for uh, you know what I thought a lot of uh, what was what, what was important about punk rock. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, like the ultimate punk in many ways, speaking his mind, um, acting in accordance with his beliefs. It would be more understandable if he were like you know, uh, like a Gigi Allen character that you know people would actually like attack him and talk about what a dickhead he was but um the fact that i i you know those things that he stood for were generally in service of being kind to each other and um you know standing up for the little guy kind of kind of weird that that amount of backlash came to him yeah and you know his intention about the no stage diving thing which you know even any of the shows i were at i I remember the ire uh he he'd eventually break into those spiels in detroit which was a big you know stage dive crowd serve kind of place um and he'd always just say like i can't remember the number he's like hey man i've seen like seven people go out on stretchers and some of them don't walk anymore it's not going to happen on my watch and i would be like that makes good sense you know (laughs) 
uh, but that that logic didn't always translate. Um, it was just one of many things that just peeved people off pretty badly. I'm always intrigued by, in the the first second stanza, he says, it's no simple burn, this is complicated. Which is interesting, like, when you, um, if you try to apply that to, like, the, the Poison Idea record cover, um, in some ways it does seem like a simple burn, <laughs> and it's it's uncomplicated. But, uh, yeah, Ian seems like the kind of guy who who is interesting in, like, teasing out the, the complications in a statement like that. And, like, well, what does this really mean? What What is the intention? What is the effect? And what's going to be the, you know, like, repercussions of putting this out in the world? And I, I guess the ultimate conclusion of this song is that um, putting that kind of thing out in the world, you know, speaking of spirituality, it comes back to you, uh, whether he's talking about sort of like in a karmic sense um, or otherwise is uh, something we could discuss. Yeah, absolutely. That That's how I kind of came to it in old age, uh, older age uh, a little bit. Um, you know, it's it's not a vengeance song, but it sounds like uh, or, or it reads like uh, I, I kind of interpret them a little bit of like it seems like it could be someone a little closer to him as well i mean it seems like he might be writing about a a number of slights he's endured and i'm sure they were plenty but um uh you know you were deceptive and you were clever and you 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 slipped in this knife with some humor and hey it actually hurts by the end i i feel like there's this spirit of like i'm exposing what you've done your cowardice and your pettiness and I refuse to absorb it. And I agree with you. It's like the returning of the screw is like, you've got to live with this. This is who you are. And uh, I'm just openly revealing that to you. That is the return fuck you. You know, it's no longer like the minor threat we're going to like throw down at the show or something, you know. Uh, it's uh, a much, much larger, wider um uh, uh, sort of approach is how I read it at this point. Um, and I love that about it. It's, it's kind of like next level Ian, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I guess something you could read into that also is the concept of living well as the best revenge. Like where are these mean zines now? Like (laughs) they're, they're little tiny footnotes in history. Whereas Ian's, you know, still living the life successfully owner of an indie label beloved and uh i think his work has stood the test of time so uh in a sense that is a kind of revenge for these sort of like petty people who are sniping at him yeah absolutely you know i think with what that band you know went through and the the way they operated through that that time i mean they were a huge enterprise doing it all themselves and and also you know negotiating all the social dramatics of you know i I don't you remember the the indie rock purists of the 90s and and all that and um you know comes like i was saying like um ian is and fugazi in general it's like one of those things i can look to and be like you know when times are bad almost like who can you trust and i'm like fugazi ian mckay they never let me down you know like they never did anything uh, horrible they never made any wrong turns and you you mentioned that word intention earlier i mean i think the uh, just the commitment and that intention it is intrinsic to why they were so good it was just the mission was there um 
And uh, yeah, this song, uh, I, I totally agree. It's like, uh, um, you know, the karmic wheel is going to come back around on you. I'm just kind of sending it back. Uh, so um, that's kind of how I was looking at it, you know, uh, revisiting these lyrics this time around. It's quite profound. Something else that was on my mind is how this sentiment has aged as we have like come into the age of Twitter uh, where I, I feel like if anything sort of like meanness to celebrities has definitely intensified um, now that everybody has a platform including uh, people who are just like flinging shit. Um, I remember reading something recently too about the the Razzies like the um, you know the like anti-Oscars for give awards for bad movies and like at at the time back in the 90s or whatever it's it seemed like sort of a um it seemed like sort of a worthy enterprise like you know take these huge movie stars down a peg when they make a crappy movie it it sort of hasn't aged well because people are being taken down a peg all the time just by people who have this sort of worldwide internet platform to to talk shit and it's like is it is it really necessary to have this faux award show that's that basically tells people they did a bad job at their job yeah 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 um you know uh there's a there's a you know adolescent just deliciousness to taking people down or having fun at others expenses for sure and and parody and um you know i i feel like uh, we have reached diminishing returns with a lot of that. And, uh, you know, that was never really Fugazi's bag either. Um, you know, I, I guess Guy would have uh, some fun at the expense of some, like, ice cream eating, like, moshers or something. But um, for the most part, like, I've just always been so enamored with how they comported themselves, you know, um, as far as I know uh, with the story and my, my sort of obsessive following of their their tale you know absolutely yeah and like i'm also i'm not trying to sit here and claim that i've never you know talked shit about somebody's uh you know creative endeavor um i've i've definitely done that like probably on this podcast at some point just you know making fun of a musician i think is corny or whatever um but this is the kind of song that makes me think twice about doing that i think when we do that sort of thing it's you know first of all we think to ourselves well this person will probably never see it or read it or hear it uh, or if they do you know they have they have so much money that's like it it should roll off their back um, but in fact they're human beings and uh, they have real feelings and I mean I'm insanely privileged compared to some people in this world, and I still have my feelings hurt. Um, so I think I can extrapolate from that that uh, it's it's probably not something you should do to just you know talk shit about somebody's new album just because you don't like it or or say something to them. I it, like it's so hard to imagine. I mean, being in that position, I've never been in the position where I've seen somebody that I've never met like call me a dickhead online or anything. Um, and of you know people I have met of course call me a dickhead all the time like that's understandable but yeah just like anonymous people forget about it that must be weird to deal with yeah I mean I, I'm sure I've had like somewhat heated uh, you know um, excitable arguments about why 
Fugazi is the best band of the 90s and Bad Religion is a joke or something. But uh, And I, I have a soft spot for some Bad Religion, but, um, you know, um, uh, I totally get what you're saying and I, I'm absolutely guilty of it. It's why sometimes I look to, uh, you know, some of these spirit guides uh, like, like Ian. It, it is really something that's important to the way I've lived my life uh, at times, you know. So the novel Middlemarch by George Eliot, um, the end of that book always sticks in my mind. It's like it's something really memorable to me where it's basically saying, um, you know, about this main character of the book. Uh, it's like, you know, she was a good person and she did good small acts and she was never became the kind of person who attained any kind of fame. Uh, and it's not like people visit her grave every year and leave flowers uh, from like ardent admirers, but the things that the good things she put out into the world uh, in their own small way just sort of added to the growing good of the world. And th- like basically that that things are, you know, pretty good for you and me now uh, in part that's because of the good people that have done small good things in this world. Um, so that that was always really memorable to me. And to me, this song is kind of like the, the corollary to that, where like I think th- the more just small, petty acts of shittiness you put out into the world, they might seem inconsequential, but uh, cumulatively, that's, that's what makes the world a worse place, um, m- maybe more so than people realize. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm with you on that. You know, I, I'm kind of racking my brain too at the moment to think of any occasion when when any member of Fugazi has talked shit about anybody. You know, out, outside of maybe you know conglomerate enterprises. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, even you, people have even kind of baited Ian to talk shit about trump and you know he just doesn't really go for it he's like yeah yeah he, he he's an asshole and it's and it's awful but but so of the last you know 20 years of presidents uh, i don't know um y- you know i i don't know if he's kind of wound up uh, uh, with this sort of like zen-like philosophy through any kind of like study of eastern uh um you know uh religion or if he just happens to be kind of like you know inherently kind of enlightened or something but some of the things he <laughs> says just resonate so much with uh uh with with some of those disciplines um it's it's fun to watch him age you know he's 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 doing it well yeah definitely but no I, i'm enjoying older ian mckay too uh-huh uh-huh and you know then there's the musical structure of this song i, I was hoping to you know ask you something or just state a you know uh, impression i've had for a long time i'm uh, about kill taker you know it's 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 one of my favorite albums ever i listen to it multiple times a year it always works you know um and but then there's the uh you know there's the albini demos um which uh you know the storyline on those and you know returning the screw is one of the songs they cut for that um the storyline is like, well, it, it, it just didn't work. It wasn't the right fit or we kind of blew it. And definitely when you hear those, um, to my ear, like, you know, the songs just don't sound finished and the performances don't sound finished and the uh, production doesn't sound finished. Um, just like maybe the material wasn't quite there or it was the wrong weekend or whatever. But 
God, I would have loved to have heard um, this album recorded with that fidelity. Because even in those rough mixes, you can hear that Albini kick drum and and the width of the guitars and the way he can record. And I, I was always like, oh, couldn't you just regrouped and gone back? And uh, not that I want to take anything away from the inner ear Ted Nicely production, um, but to hear it. Uh, a Fugazi album recorded that way uh, with them firing on all cylinders I mean it would have been pretty special I know hypotheticals are you know uh, can be kind of a uh, you know a a wormhole Um, but uh, uh, even in those um, rough mixes you you hear some of that Albini sound and you're just like oh I would because it sounds a little (laughs) bit more like they could sound live you know the the snare on the final version of Killtaker is a little clacky and it's a little smaller. And um, uh, so I've always had this kind of like, what if uh, Fugazi had ever had that kind of in utero treatment, you know, but. Uh... Sean, your feelings are much closer to mine than you know. Um, for the listeners, we're recording this on August 4th. So um, the uh, the episode on uh, Public Witness Program is uh, mere days from being released. But, Sean, you should listen to that episode, and uh, a lot of that is going to come out. Um, I think you'll be you'll be pleased with that one. <laughs> I mean, w- one of the things when I try to get, like, younger people into Fugazi, I, I know that production is an Im- impediment for them. And, and not to say these aren't well-recorded albums. They're, they're kind of this upper-level mid-fi production. But, um, you know, and, and I love them. Um, but... Uh, to me, to my mind, these are some of the best guitar albums ever recorded, and and part of me is like, oh, I just wish it had the power of "Rid of Me" or you know, "Goat" by Jesus Lizard or something like, just so it could be an easier entry point for some people. But maybe part of what's special about it is you know, digging through some of that, um, you know, kind of lower hi-fi, upper mid-fi sort of production style they got it in her ear. The Albini version for me is totally fascinating. Yeah, just like you said, um, there's there is definitely that sonic signature. Um, uh, this song in particular is an interesting listen because there's an extra little musical part um, after the second uh, se- the sender was you part. There's there's sort of this cool little breakdown that happens um, that ends up being different from the version on in on the kill taker where i guess in that one they opted for a more dynamic approach they get very very quiet again i guess down to silence and then uh, come back for that last sort of final blast at the end where ian's screaming yeah you know i i do think the final arrangement is is the right arrangement i mean it's just another example what great composers they were um but that uh that extra section in there on the Albini version, it's its pretty tough. I mean, the, the, some of the stuff on Killtaker is like the heaviest Fugazi ever got, I think, you know, and that that's kind of like a brutal um, little interlude that they stripped out in order to really take it down before it comes crashing in. And, and that moment when um, uh, returning the screw breaks after the, you know, super dynamic intro bits is like, Man, it's just like a, a wave of uh, uh, triumph and rage, you know. Um, it's 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 really uh, kind of catapulting. Something, something in particular I like about that is 
I think a, a lot of bands trying that same thing would have gone to silence and then, bam, bursts in full volume. Uh, but that doesn't happen here. It goes down to silence, and then, after a little while, there's this sort of guitar-strumming crescendo that gradually gets louder, um, and then it bursts in, which I think is an interesting choice. Um, it's like, it's sort of, they, they made the decision, like, we're not going to try to scare people by like bursting back in we're not gonna try to just like totally rip people's heads off we want a little bit of a ramp up um so it it sort of comes off as less gimmicky maybe yeah i mean and it's funny how much like tape hits you hear in that you know the whole like loud quiet thing was huge then like the nirvana pixies sort of thing and and obviously that had a great effect but um you know, Fugazi just had this extra like capacity for dynamics and chemistry where, you know, especially live when they would bring stuff down and then up. I mean, and it, it could really kind of pull a little bit with the time. They had their own sort of in, intrinsic like sense of rhythm together. Like, I just love that build up <laughs> into the, the explosion uh, in this song. This song's also kind of like structurally it's a little bit unusual for them it's kind of like a monolith i mean it, it it's got that great the intro reminds me a little of like these they're fugazi guitars but a little slint Gee's kind of like bending like just a little out um on a couple of them um intonation wise and then the the dynamics with the drums with brendan accenting you know some of ian's staccato uh uh um you know phrases uh, it's just like classic Fugazi dynamics, and then they just explode. I mean, um, yeah, I can't think of too many other songs in their catalog that there's just like this one kind of large building mountain, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think you could say about a lot of their songs that they're very team player sort of songs, but I think maybe this one is, is the one I think of that way the most in terms of like... I. I, ne- I never think of the song and think like, oh, it has such a cool drum part or it has such a cool bass part. It's like the, everything here is in service of creating a mood, right? Like everyone's trying to just contribute to like the this overall artistic impression that the song is going for um, rather than playing something that sounds cool, um, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I feel like it's a, a thing that was happening on Kill Taker a little bit, like the the explosion in this song, the end of Rend It, uh, the end of Instrument is so just heavy. Like, I, I'm not sure they ever went there in quite that way before or after, where just, I remember being at those shows when they'd hit those points, and it was just like, really heavy you don't always think of fugazi as being like a heavy band in terms of like um uh i mean they're certainly emotionally heavy but um those moments were really just uh kind of blowing your hair back you know and then when i was digging through the lyrics again i mean it's a perfect composition um you know with the quiet part he's sort of indicating this message i think a the line of fine disservice is such like an Ian line. Uh, he'd always do that like polite guy thing, like, excuse me, sir, could you stop that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, 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 exactly. It, it reminds me of that. And it, it, it kind of builds it up. Like, here's what's going on. I see what you're doing. You, you came and I didn't, I didn't see it coming. I was open and you stuck the knife in. And then when it blows up, um, it's just 
laying it out. Um, he's pissed uh, and saying it all. Um, uh, compositionally, like the lyric really builds into that um, that crescendo, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of pissed, um, <laughs> I just I wanted to say that the phrase soaked in urine it seems like more of a gee kind of lyric, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I was just yeah listening back. I was like, huh, that's it's a little atypical for Ian. That's the kind of thing I would expect Guy to say. Every album, Ian seemed to get a, a little more abstract with his his lyrics, uh, and um, this 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 album's kind of a good medium ground. Where, where some are like pretty darn comprehensible, and some are like you got to work for him a little bit. And just yeah. just as a performance, um, uh, when he hits that line sharpened and soaked in urine i don't even think he gets all the uh you know syllables out um yeah i think he leaves out the word and right he he kind of reaches for it it's at the top of his range it's just so powerful um and, and melodically you know i noticed that ian you know there's like that early ian uh stuff it, it kind of started with egg hunt even here here on like the pale head stuff a little bit definitely like the first two eps he kind of had this certain melodic thing he was doing which was really cool and then here we're getting into that territory where I, i've heard it referred to as the drill sergeant voice <laughs> and he's definitely just like nailing this uh, on the second half of the song where it's just like uh drill sergeant ian um some of the melody of of your is stripped away but what what's in its place is like really caustic i mean i love his voice uh on the second part and yet on the first part, he's singing about it as quietly as he ever did, so. Yeah, it's sort of the, uh, maybe mirrors the, the range of emotions you might go through at uh, receiving the kind of insult that he's singing about. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I also just wanted to say that something about the very beginning reminds me of, like, I don't know Beethoven or some some something classical for some reason, the uh, just that the tonality of the, the beginning, da, 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 da. Um, and maybe part of that is the the bass guitar in this whole song sounds very piano like to me. It's just like so so zingy as if you reached into a piano and just like plucked one of those huge bass strings. Um, interesting sonic texture there. I know I read or heard somewhere that Ian would compose some of these lines on, on, on piano. Uh, it, it's also interesting to listen to the Albini version of this intro. Um, it's not quite as developed and the, the guitar figures um, kind of evolve uh, quite a bit by the time um, they record with uh, Ted Nicely. There's, a, there's, there's some notes missing and some interplay not happening. I mean, uh, I love the way those two guys played guitar together and obviously and then the way the bass worked in i mean the whole the whole gestalt of the entire band it was just my god you know um yeah. but yeah. Uh, but the guitars at the top of that song are just so cool yeah and certainly the inner ear version is a bit more dynamic too um after you know after um previous guest dana williams pointed out that he sort of uh plugged the uh mp3s into audacity and just had a look at the waveform i did that for this song and it's it's really crazy like it's total flat line for like the first 14 seconds first of all and then yeah just incredibly dynamic looking song just without even listening to it um it's very very different in that way 
Yeah, yeah. And, and that was the stuff like, you know, when I was this age, I could, I really wanted to get people into Fugazi and I, I could kind of lean on 13 songs to like, yeah, you know, this works, but uh, a little, little harder sell with some of these like returning the screw type pieces. Uh, people might not want to work for um, some of the subtleties there. I mean, I, I, I didn't always know what he was saying until I'd dig into the lyrics um, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I think this is this is probably one that you want the lyric sheet with you to, um, <laughs> to fully understand what's going on. I, I was a you know, um, and I'm sorry I can go on and on about all this stuff. At, at one point, I I recorded with uh, Jay Robbins from from Jawbox, uh, and uh, you know I slowly slipping in questions about Fugazi, and um, you know Ted nicely did. Uh, for your own special sweetheart, he was their producer. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I remember him saying like, "Man, that guy was just like, uh, you know, um, he had us overdubbing guitars, getting every pick stroke perfect. It was like, you know, pretty laborious, I guess, as compared to their follow-up major label record." <laughs> and I was like, um, "What well, do you think? Do you think Fugazi put up with that?" And he was like. No, nah, I can't see those guys doing that. So, because uh, uh, I love how wild their guitars can get. You know, people talk about Fugazi being a tight band, but it was this tightness that kind of operated by its own logic. A, a lot of the times, at least you know, to my experience, it was the whole thing kind of flowing as a as a entity. You know, um, so uh, I love I love when the guitars get a little pitchy on some of these songs. Uh, it's all style, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, speaking of loving these songs, I think maybe it's time to talk about ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? And uh, on this show, we always try to assign a rating to each song, if we possibly can, from a scale of one to five stars in the context of the Fugazi catalog. So, uh, Sean Madigan Hain. What do you think you would give to Returning the Screw? I mean, so hard. I, I look at the track list on Kill Taker, I'm just like, five, 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 five. Maybe 23 Beats Off feels kind of like a code of, the lyrics are incredible. Maybe that's like, but uh, I would have to go like 4.3 uh, just because what surrounds it is straight fives, you know? I probably would do like a i don't know 3.7 for returning the screw just because there's so many other absolutely great songs but yeah man I, I, it's when you're when you're in it when like i i think returning the screw is one of those things that maybe just like if you if you just mention it to a fugazi fan it doesn't strike them as one of their favorite songs sometimes, but like once you actually listen to it and it, they lead you into it and you finally get to the part where Ian's screaming, it's just like, it's, it's like peak Fugazi by that point. So, uh, it's a difficult one to conceive of like pitting against their, their other songs. So, so when it does come around, I'm like, Oh, okay, let's, let's take it down for a minute. And then, uh, and, and then I'm always satisfied by the, by, by the, by the ride. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, well, uh, let's, uh, we have a few comments from social media on the alphabetical Fugazi pa- uh, Facebook page. I'll just rattle off a couple of those. Um, 
Jared Coffin says, This was a weird one at first, but I really liked it. It kind of reminded me of The End by The Doors. Um, that's that's an interesting comparison. Yeah, I dig that. Um, I'm not sure what it is exactly but about, but it's the second time they seem to refer to the subject. It's possible it was written around the same time as Smallpox Champion with the line sharpened and soaked in urine. It was meant to spread disease. Um, yeah, Jared, that's, that's super interesting. Cause like I, I, for, for some reason didn't think of that, but yeah, smallpox champion is the very next song on the record. And of, of course it's, it's like a reference to smallpox blankets that literally meant to spread disease. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting little, uh, comparison that I never thought of before. Hmm. Um, Brian ex officio says at age 14, I used to play this song to annoy my younger sister who was vocal in her dislike of it. Thus, I loved it. (laughs) Duncan Patterson says one of my favorites. I love how sinister and dramatic it feels in parts without ever getting cheesy. Um, I think it's about pissing on your own chips. (laughs) I don't know what that part means, but (laughs) I agree. Like they, they do really pull off the, the sinister dramatic thing while avoiding cheesiness that like, I feel like. I would have a very difficult time doing that myself. Like it seems like such a fine line to walk, but they pulled it off. Um, Rob Virginio says it's one of my favorite songs on my favorite all-time album, the perfect precursor to the smallpox rend at 23 beats monster trilogy. The buildup throughout the song until the crescendo at the end is masterful. Um, the little tidbit of Ian screeching, uh-huh. After singing the words, returning the screw has always been my favorite part to the song. And finally, Bradford Reed Goodwin says, Thinkiest diss track ever put down. The screw metaphor even works on a song level. The tension gets wound tighter and tighter until the cathartic two-minute mark when the musical screw finally breaks. Take that, Henry James. <laughs> well said. <laughs> um, okay, so that aside, uh, let's talk plugs. And, um, Sean, I... I looked up, I didn't have time to read your book, but the things that I've read about it um, really impressed me. It's really gotten some raves. So definitely tell our listeners about that and uh, anything else you'd like to point them to. Yeah, well, uh, you know, that book, that memoir was, uh, it, it was tough. I, I, I really was trying to write, you know, what you might call a, a, a piece of literature or a literary memoir. It's mostly a family story and uh uh, a story about a young person grinding through a very difficult time. Um, and in the background, not in the background, but part of it is uh, touring with a, a group through the subculture of the late 90s. Uh, it was got a little conflated with like, hey, this is a rock and roll memoir, which it isn't in any way. Although, um, you know, there's that stuff in it. And I try to approach it less from like a kind of grandiose uh you know hardcore history thing than just the human experience of like you know being out there in a van playing in squats and and just trying to survive young adulthood so um uh yeah i'm honored if anybody ever wants to take that ride and it's 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 available all over the place and uh i've i'm finishing another uh a book that that should be uh you know getting submitted pretty soon and uh uh, I also play in a band called Kind Beast uh, that some Fugazi listeners might like them, uh, so, some might not, but uh, you know it's out there still, uh, still making music. So, yeah. Sweet. Um, all right, I'll definitely be checking out some of that stuff for my own part. 
Um, so thanks very much for joining me, Sean. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. And uh, for me, as always, you can reach me at fugaziA2Z at gmail.com. You can join that Facebook group I mentioned. It's just called the Alphabetical Fugazi. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing Runaway Return. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my last picture.